On today's episode... When all of a sudden, it starts to rain. And my daughter looks out of the window. Daddy, what's that? Ah, it's rain, honey. It's rain. And for a moment, we have silence in the car. It's beautiful. There's no fighting. And he would say, Dolores, you fight the weeds for the same reason you fight evil and wickedness and stupidity in this world. You fight them not because you think you can get rid of them. You fight them to slow them down. All kinds of tales. From all kinds of tellers. Here on The Appleseed. It's time for The Appleseed. In each episode of the show, we bring you a couple of stories from a couple of favorite storytellers. And the stories will entertain you, they'll inspire you, they'll get you thinking, and they'll even help your family tell your own stories. I'm Sam Payne. In this episode, we're going to hear from two terrific storytellers, Antonio Sacre from Los Angeles and Dolores Hydock from Birmingham, Alabama. And first up, Antonio, who loves to tell stories of his Cuban-slash-Irish-American family. His favorite audience is, guess, his two children, right? But today's story is about his kids and the little graces that come our way in the midst of our stormiest days. Can you remember a time when you thought your parents were magical, able to do anything? Then this is a story for you. Have you ever had to take a car trip with quarrelsome siblings? Or have you been a quarrelsome sibling in the car? Then this is a story for you. Have you ever stopped in the middle of a stormy time and just noticed an occasion of beauty, that kind of tender mercy? Then this is a story for you. Here's Antonio Sacre with a story called Nina's Rainbow, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio. Thank you. It is great to be here. I live in Los Angeles, and every June, as we're driving down the street, there's that guy who gets out of the car. He's got the number one dad shirt on on Father's Day. And my children always say, Dad, how did he win the number one dad? And I think about it, I said, well, honey, I think it's the number of mistakes I make in a day. And my children love to recount all the mistakes I make in a day. And usually the first mistake of the day happens within five or six minutes of waking up. But we were driving in the car about five years ago in the middle of an epic Los Angeles drought. My daughter was three years old, and she had never seen rain in the car. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Delaware. And so I have these memories of watching the raindrops beat against the window and seeing the drops form into other drops and have race drops as they would come down. We didn't have iPads back then, so I was like, (laughs) that was how I would do it. And we just would listen to the rain, and then we'd go under a bridge, and then the sound of the wipers, and then the rain again. And as we're driving along, I'm doing the thing that I do. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and trying to prevent them from fighting. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as seatbelts or car seats. And so we were free-range kids to fight as much as we could in the back seat. But my kids are in 19-point harnesses, so they're just all like this. And somehow they are able to reach out of the harness and start punching and fighting. So I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm trying to mitigate. No, 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 Henry. No, 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 no. Put your hand back in that. Okay. Okay, driving along. And now Nina is getting into the act. Nina, no, 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 stop, stop that thing that you're just, stop that. My wife, eyes on the road, eyes on the road, Los Angeles traffic. And I'm trying to mitigate the fighting in the back seat when all of a sudden it starts to rain. And my daughter looks out of the window. Daddy, what's that? 
Ah, oh, it's rain, honey. It's rain. And for a moment, we have silence in the car. It's beautiful. There's no fighting. We're just watching the rain. And I'm thinking about the Valari station wagon in the 1970s. And my mom listening to the AM radio, those old songs about love. And it's peaceful in the car. And maybe this year, I'm going to win the number one dad. And we're moving <laughs> along. When the fighting starts happening again, and there's quick descent into the mistakes that I make in a day, stop, put no snacks for either one of you if you keep that up. Stop it. There's no dinner for either one of you. And my wife's calming hand on my knee. It says to me, just breathe, and I do. And I'm watching my children again, watching the rain, and the fighting starts again. And now I'm at my wit's end when, miraculously, in the middle of this drought-marred city, a rainbow appears in the sky. Symbol of God's love from ages and ages ago. And I whispered just loud enough for the whole car to hear, a rainbow. And my son looks out of the window and he says like an incantation, like a prayer, a rainbow. And my wife looks out and she says, a rainbow. And my three-year-old daughter looks out the other way and says, where? <laughs> I can't see it. Oh, honey, just turn your head to the right. I still can't see it. No, honey, turn your head. Turn your head all the way around to the other side. I still can't see the rainbow. And now she's sobbing. No, it's a rainbow. What's a rainbow? And I'm like, turn your head around. Just turn and look at the rainbow. It's beautiful and peaceful. Look at the rainbow. And she's crying. And my wife says, honey, just pull the car over. Oh, it's that easy. I pull the car over and she extracts that screaming Gorgon from the back seat and holds her up to the sky. And Nina sees her first rainbow. Thanks, Mommy. <laughs> and our hearts melt and smiles in our face. And then we sit down on the edge of the road. And then the clouds come over and the rainbow's gone. And Nina looks up at me and she says, Daddy, again. I go into a monologue about the precociousness of precipitation and how you need an angle of the light in between that refracts and it creates the colors. And my wife is observing the weather and she sees the wind blowing. She says, honey, just be quiet. And she goes like this. Like some ancient goddess and the cloud moves away and the rainbow reappears and Nina's all smiles again and she says, thanks, mommy. See, daddy, mommies are the best. <laughs> That was Antonio Sacre with a story called Nina's Rainbow. And Antonio's story about the dad and the child and the sky makes me remember a long-ago day when my dad and I drove to the lake together. We went to meet a friend of his who had invited us to go sailing on a sunny day in a tiny boat. It was a brand new adventure for both me and my dad. I was about eight years old, and while I was a little nervous as the owner of the boat cinched me into a life jacket, I knew that if my dad was with me, Nothing could go wrong. That's what dads were for, what they were good at, right? Keeping things from going wrong. Well, stuff happens. We hadn't been out on the lake for a very long time when the blue sky suddenly darkened. The wind whipped the lake into waves that rocked and sprayed us. And we headed right back to shore, of course, but boy, did it look far off. I knew that if my dad was with me, nothing could go wrong, but... When I looked at his face, I saw that he was as worried and unsure as I was 
about what was to come over the next few minutes. And I realized that we were up against something that was bigger than both of us, that there were things that were bigger than both of us, things from which my dad may be unable to protect me at all. Well, we did make it back to shore. But the father and son who climbed off the sailboat were a little different than the father and son who had climbed onto the sailboat when the day was sunny. We were a little more awestruck by the power of heaven and a little more mindful of our walk together as empathetic allies in the wide world. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed, a story from Dolores Hydock coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed, where we love to share stories with you and your family. Up next, a story from Dolores Hydock. Now, just like Antonio Sacre, who shared the story of Nina's rainbow, Dolores likes to tell stories about family members, too, as well as other people that she's met along the way. She likes to introduce you to some of those people. She likes to tell stories about folks who have done hopeful, kind, generous things. Dolores says, I need to hear those stories. I hear plenty of cynical and negative stories. Unless someone is telling about the hopeful things, you're going to think they don't exist, but they do. I love that quote from Dolores Hydock. And it describes the story that you're about to hear. This is a story of just such a person. And the story is called Becoming Mrs. Nash. Dolores told it live in the Appleseed Studio. And here it is for you. It was a Tuesday in late April, a few years ago. And the phone rang. I answered it. I did not recognize the voice at the other end of the line. The woman introduced herself as the chair of the City of Irondale Beautification Board. Congratulations, she said. You've been given an Irondale Beautification Board Award. Is it all right if we put a sign in your front yard? And I thought, what kind of a crank call is this? (laughs) I mean, I always figured the only way I was ever going to win an award for beautifying my neighborhood was by moving out. (laughs) But she seemed to be serious. Of course, later I learned that she still had one of those signs in her garage and she could not retire as chair of the committee until she got rid of it. So whatever (laughs) the reason, the next morning there appeared in my front yard this beautiful, elegant, black, wrought iron sign with scrolly white lettering. And I looked at that sign and I thought, well, okay, that makes it official. I have officially become Mrs. Nash. 7.30 of a summer evening, Reading, Pennsylvania, 1960-something. The two chairs on our front porch would have been dusted off earlier that morning, wiped clean of the thin layer of brown dust that would have settled overnight from last night's softball game in the ball field across the street. 
Those chairs were not wooden rocking chair kind of front porch chairs. They were those squared off metal chairs, you know, the ones that kind of bounce when you sit in them, have a sort of crisscross pattern on the seat, leaves this basket weave design on the back of your legs when you sit in them when Bermuda shorts. By 7.30 of a summer evening, Mrs. Nash would usually already be out there sitting on her front porch, the one right next to ours. You always knew if Mrs. Nash was out there because the minute you opened our front door, a cloud of her Lily of the Valley perfume would come wafting across the railing and gulf you in this fog of fragrance. And you'd look over and there she would be sitting on one of the white wicker chairs that furnished her porch. She'd be wearing a flowered house dress, open-toed, chunky-heeled, lace-up shoes, her gray hair arranged in tight curls flat against her head, kind of looked like a bathing cap. She would sit there smiling out across the sidewalk, across the street to the ball field on the other side. It was the one moment of rest in her day. Mrs. Nash worked at Chauffeur's Bakery in downtown Reading, rolling out pie crust and cookie dough and drizzling that thin, sweet, white glaze onto the bear claws and raspberry danish and cinnamon rolls that she sometimes brought home to share with us. Her eight-hour shift started at four in the morning. And when she came home a little after noon, she had to look after a house and a husband, the invisible Mr. Nash, whom we never saw. And then whatever time or energy she had left, she would spend in her garden. She would trade out her bakery hairnet for a big straw hat, and there she would be, weeding, feeding, fertilizing, spraying, mulching, talking. We never knew if she was talking to the plants or talking to herself or talking to the invisible Mr. Nash, but she was always out there, taking all the years it took me and my two sisters next door to grow up to transform the huge space behind her house into a prize-winning garden with swooping shrub beds full of lilacs and lilies and old-fashioned roses. You know the kind of roses I mean. Those droppy blossoms, they would kind of flop on thin stems, petals curled up like cabbage leaves, so fragrant. One blossom could perfume an entire room. I remember sometimes when I was little, I don't know, seven, eight years old, I'd be at work playing in the backyard, and she would summon me over to our shared backyard fence. She would give me a handful of those roses, the thin stems wrapped in wax paper. She'd say, give these roses to your mother, dear. And I would stagger inside, woozy from the combined aroma of old roses and old Mrs. Nash. (laughs) Many, many years later, when I learned that she had died at the age of 84, I realized She must have been about 50 at the time. But to my eight-year-old eyes, she looked like she had to be 100 years old, as old as a person could possibly be. The other kids in the neighborhood just called her the old lady with the garden. Hers was the only house on the block that didn't have any children. And usually she was sweet and soft-spoken unless somebody messed with her yard. 
She hated it when the neighborhood boys would take a diagonal shortcut running from the alley behind her house across the garden, across the street to the ball field on the other side. They only did it if they thought she wasn't looking. But sometimes she'd catch them. She'd see them through that kitchen window. She'd come out that screen door that slam right behind her. She'd come out. She'd go, hey, you boys, what are you doing running like that? You should walk on the sidewalk. You could fall and hurt yourself. And maybe she really was worried somebody might get hurt, but we figured she just didn't want anybody messing with her garden. The garden where she worked so hard. The garden that finally, finally, the year I graduated from high school, won her a Neighborhood Beautification Board Award. A green and white sign that said, Great Gardens for a Growing Community a sign that she proudly displayed in a flower bed full of petunias and begonias right in front of her house. Our yard next door was not like Mrs. Nash's yard. Behind our house was a five foot by 15 foot patch of dirt edged with a low concrete rim. We called that the garden. It bloomed purple and pink in the spring with hyacinths. In the summer, my dad planted early girl tomatoes and King Arthur bell peppers. One autumn, it was completely taken over with castor bean plants grown for my sister Alice's ninth grade science fair project. Castor bean plants, (laughs) highly poisonous plants that grew to be 10 feet tall and would not die. (laughs) No matter what Alice did to them in her search for a better understanding of the effect of soil pH variation on the growth of ricinus communis. (laughs) In addition to the garden behind our house was a detached garage and lots of room for kids to play. Mrs. Nash grew a garden. My parents grew children. I figured I wasn't ever going to grow either one. As my life followed its little path, no children, no gardens, a lifetime of living in apartments and condominiums with nothing more complicated to care for than a couple of silk chiffaleras from Hobby Lobby. (laughs) And then one day, I don't know, about 20 years ago now, some impulse in me wanted to get rooted. And so I sold my eighth floor downtown Birmingham condominium, and I moved into an 85-year-old brownstone house in Irondale, Alabama, a Mayberry-like community on the eastern edge of town. That house has a shady front porch and a breezy back porch, wavy glass windows that let in lots of light, Electrical outlets artistically arranged right in the middle of the plaster walls. (laughs) And not a single squared off right angle. Everything tilts one way or the other. I know one time I was making breakfast. I was putting some blueberries on my cereal. A few of them got away from me, rolled down to the floor. They rolled up under the refrigerator. And when I was thinking, how am I going to retrieve them? They rolled back out. (laughs) That house sits on not quite half an acre of yard that at one time or another has been home to trees and shrubs and flowers and a family of squirrels, each which is like a terrorist and the slugs are the size of cheap cigars. But when I moved into that house in November of that year, everything in that year was just kind of tan. 
You know, I don't know what yards look like here in November, but in Alabama, they're not still green. They're certainly not white with snow. They're just sort of tan. And I really hadn't given much thought to what I was going to do with all of that vegetation. Maybe I'd pave it, make it a badminton court. I don't know. But then one day, about two weeks after I moved in, it was mid-November, I went out to my car, and right next to the driveway, there's a shrub bed. And in that shrub bed was a rose, a deeply fragrant rose with petals, the color and texture of a theater curtain. And the fragrance and determination and unnecessary beauty of that rose blooming in November next to a concrete driveway seduced me into trying my hand at gardening. Well, that and my French yard man, Frederic. <laughs> it was a Saturday morning in February. First February I was in that house. I was in the kitchen reading the morning paper. A white truck pulled into the driveway. This swarthy young man got out, mid-30s, wavy dark brown hair, chocolate brown eyes four-inch long eyelashes that dusted the tops of his cheekbones. (laughs) He knocked on the back door. My name is Frédéric. I know this yard. It is a big yard. And in July and August, it is a jungle. (laughs) He gestured toward the tan expanse behind him. I noticed he was missing two fingers from his right hand. I did not want to know how he'd lost them or where they were currently composting. (laughs) I used to take care of this yard for the people who live here before you. You want me to take care of you too? (laughs) The answer to that would be... Yes. And so began my collaboration with Mother Nature and Frederic, who turned out to be as much philosopher as Yardman, because every time he would leave my house, he would leave not just with the lawn mowed and the edges trimmed, he would leave me with some useful life wisdom that might come in handy somewhere along the way. You know, he taught me, for instance, to pace myself. Dolores, he would say, Dolores. Nothing is in full bloom all the time. Or he taught me to be realistic. He would say, Dolores, they are perennial, not immortal. (laughs) We talked a lot about weeds. I would say, Frederic, we fight and fight and fight these weeds. They keep coming back. We are never going to get rid of them. And he would say, Dolores, you fight the weeds for the same reason you fight evil and wickedness and stupidity in this world. You fight them not because you think you can get rid of them. You fight them to slow them down. Well, my life lessons from Frederic came to an end all too soon when he got married and moved out of town. But I think about Frederic every February when the forsythia bursts into bloom because that's when he would come to me and say, Dolores, it is time to put the pre-emergency on the lawn. And I would think, pre-emergency? Wouldn't that be a great invention? You could go to your home improvement store, get a canister of these little pre-emergency granules, sprinkle them on your life, avert disaster before it struck. 
Well, in the 20 or so years now that I've owned that garden, or that, that garden has owned me, I have spent countless hours out there weeding, feeding, fertilizing, spraying, mulching, talking. It's where I practice my stories, my lines for plays. I'm usually out there in a big straw hat, a t-shirt I got from the Red Cross. It says, starve a mosquito, give blood. Well, one Saturday, soon after that black and white sign appeared in my front yard, I was working way in the back of the yard. A car pulled up on the street alongside. The window rolled down. This man leaned out. I didn't recognize him. He introduced himself. He said, um, yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you on winning that beautification board award. He said, that's really great. He said, I, I know you work really hard in this yard. He said, in fact, you sure do remind me of old Miss Coker. She lived in this house when I was a kid growing up in this neighborhood. And man, yeah, old Miss Coker, she must have been about 100 years old, but she was always out here working, big straw hat on, talking to herself. We all thought she was crazy. Man, you sure do remind me of her. <laughs> And he drove away, <laughs> leaving me standing there looking for a compost pile I could dive onto and die on. <laughs> well, later that afternoon, I came inside, cleaned up. I was making a sandwich in the kitchen, and something went flying past the kitchen window. I thought, wow, what was that? I ran outside. I was too slow. I couldn't see anything. A couple of days later, about the same time of day, again, I'm in the kitchen. Again, something goes whooshing past the kitchen window. I was faster this time. I ran out there, went out that screen door, slammed behind me. It was Michael, the nine-year-old who lives across the street, tearing through my yard, taking a diagonal shortcut from the alley behind, past the Nandina, past the pomegranate bush, over the stone fence, through the daylilies, across the street, to his house on the other side. I said, hey! <laughs> I had done it. I had become Mrs. Nash. <laughs> that evening, as I like to do on warm spring evenings, I went out to sit on the front porch swing. Was that Lily of the Valley? I was, no, that was just my Bengay. <laughs> I sat there looking around across the street. There's Michael and his four-year-old sister and their parents. Caddy Corner, there's a couple of 30-something newlyweds. Next door, Jason and Lauren have just had their third baby. They all call me ma'am. <laughs> and I know that to them, I look like I am 100 years old, as old as a person can possibly be. And I just have to deal with that. But then I looked at that black and white sign and I thought, you know, I could do worse than to become Mrs. Nash, a strong, hardworking woman, generous with her roses and her cinnamon rolls, a woman who probably already understood something I'm just starting to figure out, that being the old lady with the garden is not such a bad role to play. You get to talk to yourself in public. <laughs> you can wear whatever you want. And if you're lucky, your garden and the time you've spent there have taught you some useful life lessons that might come in handy somewhere along the way because, let's face it, any rose can be beautiful in May, but it takes a strong, determined, mature rose 
to keep on blooming right into November. Dolores Hydock with Becoming Mrs. Nash. Thanks to Mrs. Nash for reminding us to keep our spirits ever in bloom. We hope you will be as generous with your stories as Mrs. Nash was with her cinnamon rolls and roses. And thanks again to Antonio Sacre and Dolores Hydock for their stories. Listening to these stories always brings up memories for me that I love to share. Where do the stories take you? And who will you take along? Our episode today was produced by Brian Tanner and Wendy Folsom. Our audio engineer is Carly Wilson. Trent Horton and Evie Hendricks make up the rest of the Appleseed team. A special thanks to the subscribers to our podcast who rate us or leave reviews. We love hearing from you, and it helps people find the show. And we also love to receive emails at theappleseed at byu.edu. That's theappleseed, all one word, at byu.edu. Your thoughts and comments help us shape the future of the Appleseed. We're pleased and proud to be among the many podcasts produced by the BYU Radio family, and you can find this episode or any episode wherever podcasts are found on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.